0: Chapter 8 of When Knighthood Was in Flower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. When Knighthood Was in Flower by Charles Major. Chapter 8 The Trouble in Billingsgate Ward. About a week after Brandon's memorable interview with Mary, an incident occurred which changed everything and came very near terminating his career in the flower of youth. It also brought about a situation of affairs that showed the difference in the quality of these two persons, thrown so marvellously together from their far-distant stations, at each end of the Ladder of Fortune, in a way that reflected very little credit upon the one from the upper end. But before I tell you of that, I will relate briefly one or two other matters that had a bearing upon what was done, and the motives prompting it. To begin with, Brandon had kept himself entirely away from the Princess ever since the afternoon at the King's antechamber. The first day or so she sighed, but thought little of his absence. Then she wept, and, as usual, began to grow piqued and irritable. What was left of her judgment told her it was better for them to remain apart but her longing to see brandon grew stronger as the prospect of it grew less and she became angry that it could not be gratified jane was right an unsatisfied desire with mary was torture even her sense of the great distance between them had begun to fade and when she so wished for him and he did not come their position seemed to be reversed at the end of the third day she sent for him to come to her rooms but he by a mighty effort sent back a brief note saying that he could not and ought not to go this of course threw mary into a great passion for she judged him by herself a very common but dangerous method of judgment and thought that if he felt at all as she did he would throw prudence to the winds and come to her as she knew she would go to him if she could it did not occur to her that brandon knew himself well enough to be sure he would never go to new spain if he allowed another grain of temptation to fall into the balance against him but would remain in london to love hopelessly to try to win a hopeless cause and end it all by placing his head upon the block it required all his strength even now to hold fast his determination to go to new spain he had reached his limit he had a fund of that most useful of all wisdom, knowledge of self, and he knew his limitations, a little matter concerning which nine men out of ten go all their lives in blissless ignorance. Mary, who was no more given to self analysis than her pet linnet, did not appreciate Brandon's potent reasons, and was in a flaming passion when she received his answer. Rage and humiliation completely smothered for the time her affection. AND SHE SAID TO HERSELF OVER AND OVER AGAIN, I HATE THE low-born WRETCH, OH, TO THINK WHAT I HAVE PERMITTED. AND TEARS OF SHAME AND REPENTANCE CAME IN A FLOOD, AS THEY HAVE COME FROM YIELDING WOMAN'S EYES SINCE THE WORLD WAS BORN. THEN SHE BEGAN TO DOUBT HIS MOTIVES. AS LONG AS SHE THOUGHT SHE HAD GIVEN HER GIFT TO ONE WHO OFFERED A RESPONSIVE PASSION, SHE WAS GLAD AND PROUD OF WHAT SHE HAD DONE. But she had heard of man's pretence in order to cousin a woman out of her favours and she began to think that she had been deceived to her the logic seemed irresistible that if the same motive lived in his heart and prompted him that burned in her breast and induced her who was virgin to her very heart core and whose hand had hardly before been touched by the hand of man to give so much no power of prudence could keep him away from her so she concluded she had given her gold for his dross this conclusion was more easily arrived at owing to the fact that she had never been entirely sure of the state of his heart there had always been a love-exciting grain of doubt and when the thought came to her that she had been obliged to ask him to tell her of his affection and that the advances had really all been made by her, that confirmed her suspicions. It seemed only too clear that she had been too quick to give, no very comforting thought to a proud girl, even though a mistaken one. As the days went by and Brandon did not come, her anger cooled, as usual, and again her heart began to ache. But her sense of injury grew stronger day by day, and she thought she was, beyond a doubt, the most ill-used of women. The other matter I wish to tell you is that the negotiations for Mary's marriage with old Louis Twelfth of France were beginning to be an open secret about the court. The Duc de Longueville, who had been held by Henry for some time as a sort of hostage from the French king, had opened negotiations by inflaming the flickering passions of old Louis with descriptions of Mary's beauty as there was a prospect of a new emperor soon and as the imperial bee had of late been making a most vehement buzzing in henry's bonnet he encouraged de longueville and thought it would be a good time to purchase the help of france at the cost of his beautiful sister and a handsome dower mary of course had not been consulted and although she had coaxed her brother out of other marriage projects henry had gone about this as if he were in earnest and it was thought throughout the court that Mary's coaxings would be all in vain, a fear which she herself had begun to share, notwithstanding her usual self-confidence. She hated the thought of the marriage, and dreaded it as she would dread death itself, though she said nothing to anyone but Jane, and was holding her forces in reserve for the grand attack. She was preparing the way by being very sweet and kind to Henry. Now all of this, coming upon the heels of her trouble with Brandon, made her most wretched indeed. For the first time in her life she began to feel suffering, that great broadener, in fact maker, of human character. Above all, there was an alarming sense of uncertainty in everything. She could hardly bring herself to believe that Brandon would really go to New Spain, and that she would actually lose him although she did not want him as yet, that is, as a prospective husband. Flashes of all sorts of wild schemes had begun to shoot through her anger and grief when she stared in the face the prospect of her double separation from him, her marriage to another, and the countless miles of fathomless sea that would be between them. She could endure anything better than uncertainty— A menacing future is the keenest of all tortures for any of us to bear, but especially for a girl like Mary. Death itself is not so terrible as the fear of it. Now, about this time there lived over in Billingsgate Ward, the worst part of London, a Jewish soothsayer named Grouch. He was also an astrologer, and had of late grown into great fame as prophet of the future, a fortune-teller. His fame rested on several remarkable predictions which had been fulfilled to the letter, and I really think the man had some wonderful powers. They said he was half Jew, half Gypsy, and, if there is alchemy in the mixing of blood, that combination should surely produce something peculiar. The city folk were said to have visited him in great numbers, and— Notwithstanding the priests and bishops all condemned him as an imp of Satan and a follower of witchcraft, many fine people, including some court ladies, continued to go there by stealth, in order to take a dangerous, inquisitive peep into the future. I say by stealth, because his ostensible occupation of soothsaying and fortune-telling was not his only business. His house was really a place of illicit meeting— And the soothsaying was often but an excuse for going there. Lacking this ostensible occupation, he would not have been allowed to keep his house within the wall, but would have been relegated to his proper place, Bridge Ward without. Mary had long wanted to see this grouch, at first out of mere curiosity, but Henry, who was very moral, with other people's consciences, would not think of permitting it. Two ladies, lady chesterfield and lady ormond both good and virtuous women had been detected in such a visit and had been disgraced and expelled from court in the most cruel manner by order of the king himself now added to mary's old-time desire to see grouch came a longing to know the outcome of the present momentous complication of affairs that touched her so closely she could not wait for time to unfold himself and drop his budget of events as he travelled, but she must plunge ahead of him and know beforehand the stores of the fates, an intrusion they usually resent. I need not tell you that was Mary's only object in going, nor that her heart was as pure as a babe's, quite as chaste and almost as innocent. It is equally true that the large proportion of persons who visited Grouch made his soothsaying an excuse— The thought of how wretched life would be without Louis had put into Mary's mind the thought of how sweet it would be with Brandon. Then came the wish that Brandon had been a prince, or even a great English nobleman, and then leaped up, all rainbow-hued, the hope that he might yet, by reason of his own great virtues, rise to all of these, and she become his wife but at the threshold of this fair castle came knocking the thought that perhaps he did not care for her and had deceived her to gain her favours then she flushed with anger and swore to herself she hated him and hoped never to see his face again and the castle faded and was wafted away to the realms of airy nothingness ah how people will sometimes lie to themselves and sensible people at that so mary wanted to see grouch first through curiosity in itself a stranger motive than we give it credit for second to learn if she would be able to dissuade henry from the french marriage and perhaps catch a hint how to do it and last but by no means least to discover the state of brandon's heart towards her by this time the last named motive was strong enough to draw her any whither although she would not acknowledge it even to herself and in truth hardly knew it so full are we of things we know not of so she determined to go to see Grosch secretly and was confident she could arrange the visit in such a way that it would never be discovered one morning i met jane who told me with troubled face that she and mary were going to london to make some purchases would lodge at bridewell house and go over to billingsgate that evening to consult grouch mary had taken the whim into her wilful head and jane could not dissuade her the court was all at greenwich and nobody at bridewell so mary thought they could easily disguise themselves as orange girls and make the trip without any one being the wiser it was then as now no safe matter for even a man to go unattended through the best parts of london after dark to say nothing of billingsgate that nest of water rats and cutthroats but mary did not realize the full danger of the trip and would as usual allow nobody to tell her she had threatened jane with all sorts of vengeance if she divulged her secret and Jane was miserable enough between her fears on either hand, for Mary, though the younger, held her in complete subjection. Despite her fear of Mary, Jane asked me to go to London, and follow them at a distance, unknown to the Princess. I was to be on duty that night, at a dance given in honour of the French envoys who had just arrived, bringing with them commission of special ambassador to de Longville, to negotiate the treaty of marriage, and it was impossible for me to go. Mary was going partly to avoid this ball, and her willful persistency made Henry very angry. I regretted that I could not go, but I promised Jane I would send Brandon in my place, and he would answer the purpose of protection far better than I. I suggested that Brandon take with him a man, but Jane, who was in mortal fear of Mary, would not listen to it. So it was agreed that Brandon should meet Jane at a given place and learn the particulars, and this plan was carried out. Brandon went up to London and saw Jane, and before the appointed time hid himself behind a hedge near the private gate through which the girls intended to take their departure from Bridewell. They would leave about dusk and return, so Mary said, Before it grew dark. The citizens of London at that time paid very little attention to the law requiring them to hang out their lights, and when it was dark, it was dark. Scarcely was Brandon safely ensconced behind a clump of arbor Vitae when whom should he see coming down the path toward the gate but his grace, the Duke of Buckingham? He was met by one of the bridewell servants, who was in attendance upon the princess yes your grace this is the gate said the girl you can hide yourself and watch them as they go they will pass out on this path as i said i do not know where they are going i only overheard them say they would go out at this gate just before dark i am sure they go on some errand of gallantry which your grace will soon learn i make no doubt he replied that he would take care of that brandon did not see where buckingham hid himself But soon the two innocent adventurers came down the path, attired in the short skirts and bonnets of orange girls, and let themselves out at the gate. Buckingham followed them, and Brandon quickly followed him. The girls passed through a little postern in the wall opposite Bridewell House, and walked rapidly up Fleet Ditch, climbed Ludgate Hill, past Paul's Church, turned toward the river down Bennet Hill, to the left on Thames Street and on past the bridge, following Lower Thames, to the neighbourhood of Fish Street Hill, where they took an alley leading up towards East Cheap to Grouch's house. It was a brave thing for the girl to do, and showed the determined spirit that dwelled in her soft white breast. Aside from the real dangers, there was enough to deter any woman, I should think. Jane wept all the way over, but Mary never flinched. There were great mud-holes where one sank ankle-deep, for no one paved the street at that time, strangely enough preferring to pay the sixpence fine per square yard for leaving it undone. At one place, Brandon told me, a load of hay blocked the streets, compelling them to squeeze between the houses and the hay. He could hardly believe the girls had passed that way, as he had not always been able to keep them in view. But had sometimes to follow them by watching Buckingham he however kept as close as possible and presently saw them turn down Grouch's alley and enter his house upon learning where they had stopped Buckingham hurriedly took himself off and Brandon waited for the girls to come out it seemed a very long time that they were in the wretched place and darkness had well descended upon London when they emerged Mary soon noticed that a man was following them, and as she did not know who he was, became greatly alarmed. The object of her journey had been accomplished now, so the spur of a strong motive to keep her courage up was lacking. "'Jane, someone is following us,' she whispered. "'Yes,' answered Jane, with an unconcern that surprised Mary for she knew Jane was a coward from the top of her brown head to the tip of her little pink heels. Oh, if I had only taken your advice, Jane, and had never come to this wretched place! And to think, too, that I came here only to learn the worst! Shall we ever get home alive, do you think? They hurried on, the man behind them taking less care to remain unseen than he did when coming. "'Mary's fears grew upon her as she heard his step "'and saw his form persistently following them, "'and she clutched Jane by the arm. "'It is all over with us, I know. "'I would give everything I have, or ever expect to have on earth for, "'for Master Brandon at this moment.' "'She thought of him as the one person best able to defend her. "'This was only to welcome an opportunity, and Jane said, "'That is Master Brandon following us.' if we wait a few seconds he'll be here and she called to him before mary could interpose now this disclosure operated in two ways brandon's presence was it is true just what mary had so ardently wished but the danger and therefore the need was gone when she found that the man who was following them had no evil intent two thoughts quickly flashed through the girl's mind she was angry with Brandon for having cheated her out of so many favors and for having slighted her love, as she had succeeded in convincing herself was the case, all of which Grouch had confirmed by telling her he was false. Then she had been discovered in doing what she knew she should have left undone and what she was anxious to conceal from everyone, and worst of all, had been discovered by the very person from whom she was most anxious to hide it so she turned upon jane angrily jane bolingbroke you shall leave me as soon as we get back to greenwich for this betrayal of my confidence she was not afraid now that the danger was over and feared no new danger with brandon at hand to protect her for in her heart she felt that to overcome a few fiery dragons and a company or so of giants "'would be a mere pastime to him. "'Yet see how she treated him. "'The girls had stopped when Jane called Brandon, "'and he was at once by their side with uncovered head, "'hoping for, and of course expecting, a warm welcome. "'But even Brandon, with his fund of worldly philosophy, "'had not learned not to put his trust in princesses, "'and his surprise was benumbing when Mary turned angrily upon him. "'Master Brandon!' Your impudence in following us shall cost you dearly. We do not desire your company, and will thank you to leave us to our own affairs, as we wish you to attend exclusively to yours. This from the girl who had given him so much within less than a week. Poor Brandon! Jane, who had called him up, and was the cause of his following them, began to weep. Sir, said she, forgive me. It was not my fault. She had just said... SLAP! came Mary's hand on Jane's mouth, and Jane was marched off, weeping bitterly. The girls had started up towards East Cheap when they left Grouch's, intending to go home by an upper route, and now they walked rapidly in that direction. Brandon continued to follow them, notwithstanding what Mary had said, and she thanked him and her God ever after that he did. They had been walking not more than five minutes, when just as the girls turned a corner into a secluded little street, winding its way among the fish warehouses, four horsemen passed Brandon in evident pursuit of them. Brandon hurried forward, but before he reached the corner heard screams of fright, and as he turned into the street distinctly saw that two of the men had dismounted and were trying to overtake the fleeing girls fright lent wings to their feet and their short skirts affording freedom to their limbs they were giving the pursuers a warm little race screaming at every step to the full limit of their voices how they did run and scream it was but a moment till brandon came up with the pursuers who all unconscious that they in turn were pursued did not expect an attack from the rear the men remaining on horseback shouted an alarm to their comrades but so intent were the latter in their pursuit that they did not hear. One of the men on foot fell dead, pierced through the back of the neck by Brandon's sword, before either was aware of his presence. The other turned, but was a corpse before he could cry out. The girls had stopped a short distance ahead, exhausted by their flight. Mary had stumbled and fallen, but had risen again, and both were now leaning against a wall, clinging to each other a picture of abject terror brandon ran to the girls but by the time he reached them the two men on horseback were there also hacking away at him from their saddles brandon did his best to save himself from being cut to pieces and the girls from being trampled underfoot by the prancing horses a narrow jutting of the wall a foot or two in width a sort of flying buttress gave him a little advantage and up into the slight shelter of the corner thus formed he thrust the girls and with his back to them faced his unequal foe with drawn sword. Fortunately, the position allowed only one horse to attack them. Two men on foot would have been less in each other's way, and much more effective. The men, however, stuck to their horses, and one of them pressed the attack, striking at Brandon most viciously. It being dark and the distance deceptive, the horseman's sword at last struck the wall, a flash of sparks flying in its trail, and lucky it was, or this story would have ended here. Thereupon Brandon thrust his sword into the horse's throat, causing it to rear backward, plunging and lunging into the street, where it fell, holding its rider by the leg against the cobblestones of a little gutter. A cry from the fallen horseman brought his companion to his side, and gave Brandon an opportunity to escape with the girls. Of this he took advantage, you may be sure, for one of his mottos was, that the greatest fool in the world is he who does not early in life learn how and when to run in the light of the sparks from the sword stroke upon the wall brief as it was brandon recognized the face of buckingham from which the mask had fallen of this he did not speak to anyone till long afterward and his silence was almost his undoing how often a word spoken or unspoken may have the very juice in it either way the girls were nearly dead from fright and in order to make any sort of progress Brandon had to carry the princess and help Jane until he thought they were out of danger Jane soon recovered but Mary did not seem anxious to walk and lay with her head upon Brandon's shoulder apparently contented enough in a few minutes Jane said if you can walk now my lady I think you had better. We shall soon be near Fishmonger's Hall, where someone is sure to be standing at this hour. Mary said nothing in reply to Jane, but as Brandon fell a step or two behind at a narrow crossing, whispered, Forgive me, forgive me. I will do any penance you ask. I am unworthy to speak your name. I owe you my life and more, and more a thousand times." At this she lifted her arm and placed her hand upon his cheek and neck. She then learned for the first time that he was wounded, and the tears came softly as she slipped from his arms to the ground. She walked beside him quietly for a little time, then, taking his hand in both of hers, gently lifted it to her lips and laid it upon her breast half an hour afterward brandon left the girls at bridewell house went over to the bridge where he had left his horse at little hostelry and rode down to greenwich so mary had made her trip to grouches but it was labor worse than lost grouch had told her nothing she wanted to know though much that he supposed she would like to learn he had told her she had many lovers a fact which her face and form would make easy enough to discover He informed her also that she had a low-born lover, and in order to put a little evil in with the good fortune, and give what he said an air of truth, he added to Mary's state of unrest more than he thought, by telling her that her low-born lover was false. He thought to flatter her by predicting that she would soon marry a very great prince or nobleman, the indications being in favour of the former and in place of this making her happy she wished the wretched soothsayer in the bottomless pit he and all his prophecies herself too for going to him his guesses were pretty shrewd that is admitting he did not know who mary was which she at least supposed was the case so mary wept that night and moaned and moaned because she had gone to grouches it had added infinitely to the pain Of which her heart was already too full and made her thoroughly wretched and unhappy as usual though with the blunders of stubborn self-willed people someone else had to pay the cost of her folly brandon was paymaster in this case and when you see how dearly he paid and how poorly she requited the debt i fear you will despise her wait though be not hasty the right of judgment belongs to you-know-whom. No man knows another man's heart, much less a woman's, so how can he judge? We shall all have more than enough of judging by and by, so let us put off, for as many to-morrows as possible, the thing that should be left undone to-day. End of chapter 8